good morning. There are a few things I want to highlight um, before we open up God's Word together. One is, if you are new to Chillicothe Bible Church, we've got a bunch of new people uh, who are who have recently joined us, and uh, in fact, we've had a delightful time, Karen and I, over the last four weeks getting to know some of those who are new. And uh, if you would like to consider joining Chillicothe Bible Church, I have uh, applications uh, available to do that, so um, I'll uh, put those up here for now, but I will collect them out and uh, hand them out to anybody who wants one here in a little bit. Also, small groups start today. Now, if you are new to Chili Bible, uh, you've never seen this, but uh, if, you're, if you're an old person, you remember these. Uh, I mean, old in terms of your attendance here. Um, but if you are someone who's been uh, been around a while uh, here at Chili Bible, you've seen these before. These are small group questions, and they're based on the sermon. Uh, not all of our small groups are necessarily sermon-based. Most of them, however, are. Um, that means by coming here today, you're all prepared to be part of a small group discussion on the message that I'm about to give. And so you'll want to pick one of these up. They're on the table out in the foyer uh, under the little heading uh, that says small groups. Yes? Okay. All right. Well, um, not all groups evidently start today, but our official start to small groups is today. And, um, and these will be available every week um, starting today uh, through the spring. And you'll have opportunity to look in more depth at the passage and how it applies to your life and to talk through it and pray with your brothers and sisters. If you're not in a, a group of any kind, um, you know, I'm talking about a, a men's group that meets through the week or a, a women's Bible study or a prayer group uh, that might meet through the week. We encourage you to uh, consider being part of a small group. Uh, most of those are mixed uh, men and women and um and you have an opportunity to be in a group of people who are going to connect with you, who are going to pray with you, who are going to probably want to eat with you and uh, get to know. You can't have a church meeting and not have food, right? And, um, and you're going to uh, get deeply connected to them. And uh, if you're not in a group like that, we want, you, we want everybody, because we think it's vital for your Christian life, to be part of some kind of a group like that where you are, you have people who are investing in you and that you are connecting with and that you are accountable to and praying with and, uh, and doing the Christian life together. Now, one of the other things that's exciting that I want to just hang a bell on here for a minute is next week, uh, we have a brand new missionary that we are commissioning here at Chili Bible. I'm very excited about this. Her name is Christy Hughesby. Uh, she's going to be here all next weekend. There's a variety of events uh, going on with that. One of those events is she will be at my house on Monday night for dinner. And if you would like to be at that very exclusive meeting, we have open spots. And we would love, Karen and I, to host anyone who would like to join us for dinner uh, at that event. Uh, you'll have an opportunity to, to spend some time with Christy more uh, more personally and in a little smaller context. Um, and so I encourage you to uh, connect with me or Karen if you'd like to be one of the members of that 
that exclusive club to get behind the velvet rope into my house for dinner. And uh, enjoy that. It'll be really fun. Um, if you haven't ever been to my house, see me, because uh, we need to have you over for dinner. Um, but in any case, uh, there'll be an opportunity for, for that. There's a potluck next week that we'll all participate in, and we encourage you to participate in that. But also, you know, I've been highlighting books out of our church library out in the hallway. And missions is one of the areas that sometimes gets neglected and not thought about. But missions is part of the mission of the church to go into all the world and make disciples. Amen? That is our mission. Uh, Chillicothe Bible Church, you have it at the top of your bulletin today. It says, we exist to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Right? That's why we're here. And, um, and so I want to encourage you to consider looking at some missions-related things. And this book is a great one. I've read it uh, all the way through uh, several years back. Uh, but it's called From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. Now the gospel, it's a story, uh, and it's told in biographical form, little snippets of stories of different uh, figures in, in Christian missions history that carried the gospel from Jerusalem all the way around the world to the furthest, most remote parts of the earth, the gospel has gone forth. And so if you, um, if you liked to read some good stories of how God used his people to get the gospel to the furthest corners of the earth, this is a good one to pick up. So I'll leave that up here for you. Um, and there's just a lot of great stuff in our library. And um, I encourage you to check that out, check out other things that are there as well. Now, let me pray, and then let's open God's Word together. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for all of the amazing, miraculous things that you are accomplishing at Chillicothe Bible Church right now. Through our church, Father, you are reaching children in the community. You are reaching hurting and uh, abused people. You are uh, reaching around the world with the gospel. You are reaching this local community with people who need to know Jesus. You are helping us to mature and grow in our faith. You're creating a worshiping community. You are bringing the dead to life by your Holy Spirit. And we are seeing new life take place as people put their, their trust in Jesus Christ for the first time. As those who have put their trust in Christ sometimes years ago come back to Him. Father, we are seeing it. And it's amazing. And we glorify You because of what You do. Because You are a good and a great and a powerful God who loves His people. And Father, we pray that You would love us through Your Word this morning as we look to You and see Your reflection in it. And we pray that we would uh, make adjustments to our lives as we're exposed to the Word. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if you've seen these or not, but recently uh, there's a business called Hotels.com that has been running a series of ads starring an actor named Brandon Moynihan. And he is dressed in a red double-breasted jacket that is festooned with cords and epaulets and decorated with medals. 
and he is wearing a shiny black billed cap, and he looks like a living tin soldier from somebody's Napoleonic War chess set, right? Have you seen these? And his name is Captain Obvious. Have you seen Captain Obvious? It's is great. He has ads that say things like this. Like on Mother's Day, they came out with an ad that said, if you're my mother, happy Mother's Day. If you're not my mother, happy Sunday. <laughs> right? And then you're like, you're like, what is this? Or he says, fool me once. Well, you fooled me. Fool me again? Well, you fooled me two times. Fool me again? Well, I guess I've been fooled three times. Right? And he's and 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 they say things like, you know, thank you, Captain Obvious, for uh, letting us know these things, right? And the whole point of this is this idea that, well, booking a hotel on hotels.com is easy and all that, right? And it's so easy, it's obvious that you should pick them instead of Expedia or Travelocity or your local travel agent or what have you. But I bring him up not because I have a stake in any advertised campaign, uh, but because I, I'm going to be a little bit of Captain Obvious today as I go through the Word of God, and it tells us things that should be obvious to us about how Christians should behave toward one another. It's not hard to understand. This is not a complex text. We're not going to uh, explicate the mystery of the hypostatic union of Christ. We're not going to explain all of the wonders of the Trinitarian God and how there are three persons eternally existent in one being who is God. It's nothing nearly that deep. But it is important. And it is truth that ought to be obvious and ought to be obviously present in every one of our lives. Amen? If you've been a Christian longer than five minutes, you know these things. But boy, are these hard to put into practice. And so we need to spend some time being confronted by God's Word and letting the Holy Spirit speak to us. So if you would, please stand with me as I read again this passage from God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 29. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Please be seated. If you look at the context of these verses that immediately precede these, what you'll see in them is God's command to put off that which belongs to your old nature, that which belongs to your old self, to get rid of, in other words, that which is corrupting from who you used to be, and to put on Christ, and to put on the new self, uh, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You must get rid of sin, in other words, and replace it with Christ-like character. And these verses 
And frankly, all of the verses in the rest of the book explain what that means. They give examples and concrete ways of what it means that we are to put off that which belongs to the old nature, the old self, the old way of life, who we used to be before we knew Christ, and to put on Christ and His character and to live in a new way, to live in light of the fact that we have been made new, that we have been born again as uh, as Jesus tells Nicodemus He needs to be. Right? What If we're born again, what does that look like? I mean, that's a theological term that we embrace, but how do we do it? Well, Ephesians 4 begins to explain to us how. In verse 25, we see that uh, we are to replace falsehood with honesty. As you grow in Christ, you and I must be honest. We're to put away every form of dishonest behavior and to become honest and truthful people because we recognize that it isn't sufficient to stop lying and deceiving one another. We also have to be people of the truth. People who are characterized by the truth. And let me be clear about this, this too. The word that's translated falsehood here is pretty general. And it is meant to cover all forms, all forms of dishonesty. You aren't just dishonest when you straight up lie to somebody. Amen? I mean, obviously that's included, but that's not the only kind of falsehood that we can live under. It it means that when we ask, we are asked a question, we give a truthful answer. A fully truthful answer. If we follow Christ, we don't lie. We don't shade the truth. We don't tell white lies. We don't distort what someone said to make it seem worse than it was. And we don't engage in spin over things that we said. We don't engage in deliberately misreading one and put the worst possible spin on what they said so we can score points against them in an argument or use that as a reason to ignore their point. Some of y'all are thinking about your social media right now. Right? We don't puff up something that we're selling to make it seem better than it is. We don't do things that we are ashamed of and then cover our tracks by deleting our browser history or deleting an incriminating email or text. We don't deceive people about what we're doing. We don't keep secrets from our spouses or engage in any behavior that if it were known to our family or our friends that we would be tempted to lie about. We don't tell people we're going to do something and then refuse to honor our commitment. Amen? Whether that's showing up for work or serving at church or keeping our marriage vows, we put away falsehood. We don't do these things, first of all, because God loves us beyond our imagination. 
And He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and we love Him in return. And we also don't do these things because of what the text says here. That we are members of one another. Falsehood in any form is a species of self-harm, is Paul's point. That because we're all part of the body of Christ, falsehood is like choosing to deliberately smash your thumb with a hammer. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've, I've smashed my thumb with a hammer, but never deliberately. In fact, you probably can't make yourself do that, right? Because as that 20 ounces of steel is headed your way, you're going to flinch. You're going to move, right? The only way you do that is accidentally. And so Paul's point here is this, that just as you wouldn't harm yourself deliberately, unless there's something wrong with you, you you wouldn't also commit falsehood because you are members of one another. You are part of the body of Christ together. And falsehood is like choosing to deliberately hurt yourself. There are painful repercussions for the rest of the body if you're a person who lives in deception and falsehood. We're all connected to one another. And what we each do has a profound effect on our overall health, both as the body of Christ here at Silicon Valley Bible Church and also as the universal church. Amen? Christians should be fully trustworthy people. What we say should stick. You should be able to trust it. Christians should be the people that you know aren't going to lie to you, aren't going to try to deceive you, aren't going to do some kind of end around and well, technically, this was okay because. Amen? The risk of engaging in more Captain Obvious, uh, verses 26 and 27 tell us that as we mature in Christ, that you and I must rule our emotions. We must rule our emotions. Now, it's easy to be ruled by our emotions. That does not take any effort whatsoever. That is the default setting that most of us live with, right? But if we are maturing in Christ, then you rule over your emotions. And you do it, and so do I. And And Paul here specifically mentions anger, and I think he does so because anger is the emotion that we are most prone to expressing and the one which has the most destructive power. Improperly expressed anger has the power both to destroy us and other people. So we read, in your anger, do not sin. Which means that there is a way to be angry and that is not sinful and that sometimes anger is the right response. Now, let me be very clear here. Over the years, I've heard a lot of professing Christian people get really eloquent in their speechifying about their righteous indignation. You know, uh, well, I'm not angry. I just have righteous indignation, right? And they think that, and they draw a lot of attention to the scene 
in John where Jesus grabs a whip and drives the money changers out of the temple and is flipping over tables and whacking people with his whip, right? And we think of ourselves in the story as Jesus rather than the money changers, um, which is always interesting, right? That we always identify ourselves. I'm Jesus in this story, right? Rather than someone who is unrighteous and deserving of his punishment, right? But let's remember that Jesus is the Son of God, and so He can choose to punish sinners in His own temple with His perfect righteousness anytime He wants. But we are less prone to righteous anger than we want to believe or make other people believe or that we want to make excuses for. And it is true that sin should make us angry, but we have to be careful. Because anger easily is an emotion that runs out of control and becomes sinful. It's easy to be sinfully angry and hard to be sinlessly angry. And it's easy to want to make excuses for whatever you're doing. If your anger leads to cursing someone else or to threats or to verbal or physical intimidation or to violence against someone, guess what? It's sinful anger. Your anger is also sinful if it becomes name-calling and belittling. Right? Like, you're so stupid. You're such an idiot, right? Now that might be true, but it's also sinful anger being expressed, right? It's sinful if it's your default response to everything that doesn't line up with your preferences. You've seen those people? Like the slightest thing goes wrong in the checkout line at Walmart and all of a sudden they're waving their arms and turn bright red, and you're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Well, I guess they were out of peas on aisle two. You know, I mean, I don't know what happened, right? But, but they, they have, it's, this is their default response. It's sinful when you do something like watch the news or participate in social media for the purpose of either getting angry or expressing anger. You seen these people? Are you aware that hate watching is a phenomenon that people engage in? They watch something for the purpose of winding themselves up because anger is their favorite emotion to feel. It's sinful anger when you feed it so that it lingers. And that's why verse 26 says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now I don't think that this literally means and I've, I've seen some of this where it's misapplied and people go, well, that means you can't end the day being upset with your spouse, as an example, right? So you have to talk about it that same day until it's resolved, right? Now, I've been married 25 years. And I can just tell you that in my house, at least, sometimes it's better to let things sit for a minute 
right? And let everybody just kind of go to their corners and figure things out. And if, and if it's late at night, we better let that one wait till tomorrow morning after we've slept, we've had a cup of coffee, we're not tired and hangry, right? And, uh, and, and then maybe we can come to peace on this, right? So it doesn't mean you have to resolve everything necessarily the same day, but it does mean that you can't let it go on an unlimited basis, right? You can't let this fester six months where you're feeding it every day and every time you see them, you go... Right? Because what, what happens to anger when you feed it? It hardens into bitterness and you become irreconcilable to that person. And my Bible says in verse 27 what happens if you feed it. It says, give no opportunity to the devil. Your, your Bible may read, and I like this translation better actually because it's a little more vivid. Do not give the devil a foothold. You know what a foothold is? If you're climbing up, you know, if you're doing rock climbing or you're doing, you know, like the, the fake version like they have at the mall sometimes where you harness up and you've got the little handholds and stuff. You know what a foothold is? It's, it's a place that you, it sticks out just enough that you can get your toes on it and you can use it as leverage to advance, right? And what the devil does, and he loves this, is to find a point of conflict between people, particularly Christians, and to use that to get leverage to advance and bring division. Paul says, don't feed your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity to advance in your relationship. Feeding anger, carrying it with you day after day, and enjoying its sinful pleasures. Because let's face it, we enjoy being angry sometimes. Soon hardens into bitterness. And it sucks the joy of following Christ right out of your life. And it gives the devil an amazing opportunity to turn you away from Jesus. And so instead of being people who are ruled by our emotions, who make excuses for every, uh, every sinful expression of our emotions that we might have, we have to rule over them, even and especially anger. It shouldn't become our default setting. It shouldn't carry over from day to day. And we can't feed it lest Satan use it to destroy us in our relationships with one another and our relationships within our homes. Amen? Because anger fed will do exactly that. Verse 28 tells us that as you mature in Christ, you must be generous. Uh, the word reads, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so instead of stealing where you're taking, you are working so that you are able to be generous and giving. Not taking, giving. 
and we put off theft and put on generosity resulting from honest wages earned by hard work and an honorable job, whether that job is waste management or banking. Right? Nobody wants a job as a waste management engineer, also known as the trash man, right? Nobody wants that job, but it's a job that has value, a job that is honorable, and more importantly, a job that needs to be done, right? To deal with the garbage is an important thing. And it's an honorable job paying honorable wages doing important work, right? We might look down on it, but it's a job that would generate the ability to be generous with other people. If you're a banker, be generous. If you're a transmission specialist, be generous. If you're retired because God has blessed you enough to have sufficient resources to live for many years, be generous. Right? But we put off theft. Uh, you work hard with the idea that you aren't just working to meet your own needs, but so that you have something to share with those who are in need. And viewing all that you gain as not really yours, but given to you by God as a means for you to give a blessing to other people. Even Abraham, who was the recipient of the greatest blessing in all the history of the world, was told that he was going to be blessed in order to be a blessing. And God's expectation of us is the same, that we would be blessed by Him, that we might be a blessing to others. And so a Christian must not steal, but instead be generous. So we don't rob people. We don't take anything that doesn't belong to us, whether that is pins from the office or merchandise from the back room. We provide what we promised. For example, let me just give you... This is, I ran across this story this week. I thought it was a phenomenal illustration of this point. There was once a farmer who was taken to court by the baker who bought wheat from him. And he said, well, uh, this guy has been stealing from me because I am not getting a pound of wheat when I buy a pound of wheat. And the case was thrown out because the farmer in defense said, well, you have to understand, Judge, I don't have a counterweight for my scale, so I use a one-pound loaf I bought from the baker. <laughs> right? Yikes. Um, we deal honestly. We don't rob people. We don't borrow things and forget to return them, borrow money, neglect to pay it back. We don't put a fence on our neighbor's property. We don't use our employer's time or car or money for purposes other than they have delineated and approved. When someone hires us, we work hard and we do what we're supposed to be doing the whole time we're supposed to be working. And we show up on time and we don't leave before we're supposed to. We don't steal anything. Not money, not stuff, not time from anyone. Instead, we hold our possessions such as they are, whatever they are, whether they are abundant or meager, with an open hand looking out 
for how we can use them to bless other people and benefit them in every possible way and be a blessing to others. That's what a generous-hearted person does. And as you mature in Christ, you must speak with grace. That's verse 29. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now again, here's the pattern. Put off this and put on this. Replace it with this. And what's corrupting talk? Well, the word corrupting there literally means rotten, putrid, or filthy. And it includes obscene language. Christians shouldn't cuss. Again, at the risk of being very obvious here, Christians should not do that. They shouldn't use terms or phrases that aren't exactly four-letter words, but are vile and nasty, even if they're considered a bit more culturally acceptable. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to give you a list of all this stuff, right? And rotten and corrupting talk also includes not just obscene or off-color language, but also every kind of other conversation that we might have that runs other people down, whether they're absent or present in the room. It includes conversation that spreads gossip or slander or celebrates that which God condemns as evil. All these things are different varieties of poison. They are rotten. They are putrid. They are decayed should be marked instead by encouragement, by blessing, by a refusal to speak ill of others, an unwillingness to slander, a rejection of gossip, and be something that preserves like salt rather than decays like rot. You see that seasoned with salt? That's the idea, is that our speech should be that which preserves and blesses rather than rots. People should leave a conversation with us, in other words, feeling blessed rather than depressed. There was a, a Scottish preacher in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. His name was Alexander White. Uh, he was a pastor in the Scottish Free Church. And it was said of him that his speech was so gracious that all of his geese became swans. Right? Been around any geese, kind of a loud, gnarly, nasty, honking bird, right? But a swan is beautiful and elegant, graceful, right? I'm sure that's an overstatement, but it beautifully expresses the idea that we're talking about. The goal that we should strive for is that our speech should transform and bless those who hear it. People should leave a conversation with us feeling encouraged and uplifted rather than beat down and discouraged and in need of a shower. Amen? Here's the main application point of this whole section of Scripture. Your transformation in Christ is not some ethereal form of spirituality. 
It's not this high and lofty thing where you're like, you know, contemplating your navel on a mountain. Oh, you know, it's not that. Okay. Our Christianity, our our spiritual life, our spiritual uh, connection with God is not simply some invisible thing. It shows up in how we treat people in concrete, practical, visible ways. It changes how we speak, how we act, what we do. We don't lie or practice falsehood, but we act honestly and truthfully. We don't let our emotions and especially our anger lead us into sin, but we rule over them and we refuse to give Satan an opportunity. We don't steal, but we give. We don't pollute with our conversation, but we use it to build up and encourage and bestow grace on one another. Amen? This is all very simple stuff. Maybe even words from Captain Obvious. But nevertheless, words that you and I must apply. If the gospel is to be revealed as real and powerful in our lives, the gospel is this very simple message. Amen. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. And all who believe that he died on the cross for them personally and was raised from the dead receive at that moment the new birth that Jesus promised. But. Following that, at that moment that that you put your trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into your life and He begins to work that new life out in your life. And to transform your heart. And these are some of the very practical ways that shows up or needs to show up. Words that you and I have to apply ought to be obvious not just in the Word, but in our life and with our family and friends and other people that we encounter so that they can see how much God loves us and how much we love Him being demonstrated in how we love them. Amen? So, let's pray. Father, we thank You that the Word is not high above us. It's not beyond our reach. It's not something that only the highly intellectual can understand. Because Father, if it was, there'd be very few of us who could ever hope to attain to it. But Father, You give us simple, easy-to-understand hard to obey commands. And then you give us your Holy Spirit to enable the obedience that you command. Father, I pray that if anyone here has been convicted of a particular sin that we've been talking about here this morning, I pray that they would, in humility and in wondrous appreciation of your grace, come to you and confess their sin and be healed of it. Because your word says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, if there's anyone here who has wounded someone by their sin, I pray they would go to them in repentance and humility and confess to them as well and would extend forgiveness for whatever hurt they've received. And Father, I pray that we, your people, would be so obviously people of grace and truth. That the gospel and its reality and its power could not be denied by all those we know. And Father, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord, and by your almighty spirit. Amen.